0: Been out one year today that Troy came to lead us in worship. Praise the Lord. And I gotta tell you, that guy's the real deal. I mean, he really is. I, I've worked with worship leaders before that are really good up front and they're a real pain to deal with behind the scenes. <laughs> Troy is not that way. What you guys see up here is what you get back there, too. So praise the Lord. really funny, in the last service somebody came up to me and said, I, I see you're preaching on, a, on the sermon topic today of, of, of tired and true. I said, no, it's tried and true, you bonehead. It's not tired and true. I might feel that way sometimes, but it's, it's tired. I mean, tried and true. So, yeah. So anyways, it's, it's, I don't know about you guys, I, I just, I love that worship set. I, they did that in the first service too, and I just felt really, uh, you guys are clapping mood. And I just felt really drawn to God. And so, uh, you know, there's sometimes, I know you experience this too, there's sometimes you come in on a Sunday, at least I do, and you know, I'm just kind of there. Just sort of blasé, and you know, and I'm here because I'm paid to be, and called to be, and all that stuff, but I I'm here nonetheless, and Yet God does something in my heart and in my mind as I worship him and as I'm drawn to him. And then by the time I get up here to talk to you guys, it's like I'm there. And uh, I just love God for that. And I, and I hope and pray you guys have experiences like that too. Maybe not every Sunday, but times where, as Lewis said so well, that he surprises us with joy. That, uh, that he breaks into our world in such a way that you're drawn to him. And that's really the whole purpose of worship is to just draw us to himself and to prepare us for what comes next in our worship service, and that's his word. Which, as you guys know, because this is a Scottsdale Bible Church, we believe the Bible is God's word, it's his truth, it's an instruction manual that God has given us for life. And how to know him and love each other. So... We've been working through the book of Philippians. We're almost done. We're nudging up against the end of chapter 3 today. And next week we'll wrap up in chapter 4. So why don't you bow with me right now and I'm going to pray. And then as soon as I'm done praying, we're going to show you a little video bump to get you thinking about where we're going in the Word this morning. So let me bow, pray, and then we'll direct your attention to the screen. Father God, we thank you that uh, you draw us to yourself in so many ways throughout the week. You get our attention. And then we come in here to meet together as the gathered church and in worship, Lord, it's designed to draw us as well to you, in our minds, and our hearts, even in our wills. So I pray, God, that as we turn to your word now, that we might be prepared uh, to have focused minds, tender hearts, to receive what you have for us. Uh, God, if there are some of us here today who are very, very far from you in relationship, may you use this time now to draw us closer, even in salvation. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. I got to tell you, it's an interesting phenomenon what's going on today in our modern world. The vast majority of negative role models, we're going to see this in a minute, come out of Hollywood and politics, and yet when you ask people who then their positive role models are, they almost always mention somebody much closer to home. And it's usually somebody that you don't know necessarily who they are. Fascinating. In a poll done in 2005 by the Associated Press, they found that the overwhelming majority of respondents felt that Hollywood stars are, by and large, poor role models. When I read that, I thought, well, duh. I mean, you don't know that. I thought that's just like a no-brainer. I mean, most people would agree that most of the negative role models for our kids and loved ones come from Hollywood and the media, from Britney Spears to Lindsay Lohan, from Mick Jagger to Howard Stern, from Bart Simpson to most of the real housewives. I mean, just watch primetime television and you get that. And yet what's fascinating as well is that when you ask teenagers and young people, however, where then their positive role models come from, they hardly ever mention that anybody that you would necessarily... Necessarily know. They begin with their parents and then they go down the list of nobodies who have non-celebrity status that most of us have never heard of. And so parents routinely come out on the top for most young people's positive role models and yet when you take them out of the equation, as a recent poll did this year when they asked 602 teenagers who their most positive models are other than their parents, the answers surprised everybody. They were a list of close to home, but never heard of by you, non-celebrities. Number one on the list was a relative. Number two was a teacher or a coach. Number three was a friend. Number four was a religious leader that they know personally. Only when you got to number five or number six, again, after one's parents, did you get an actor or a musician. More than two-thirds of teenagers polled cited a relative, teacher, pastor, friend, or coach as the most positive role models for them, again, aside from their parents. And so what I simply need you to see is that in our current modern-day experience, the newsmakers and celebrities top our worst role models, but those more personal and closer to home top the most positive. And what you simply need to know is that some things never change. Some things never change. Because when you read the book of Philippians, and specifically chapter 3, verses 17 to 21, which we're going to look at today, what you find is that Paul the Apostle is by and large going to tell us the same thing. That this pattern of role models needing to be those that are close to home and very personal to you and that have non-celebrity status as opposed to the negative ones all around you in a fallen culture is the same thing back then as it was now. And the book of Philippians was written 7,000 miles away 2,000 years ago. And, And so look with me at what it says. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21, and you'll see what I mean. It says, brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those, Paul Pause right there, the assumption being those around you in your sphere of influence, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things." But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So latch on to what he is saying here, folks. Paul tells them that they have role models around them. He calls them imitators and examples here in our text. Those that are immediately around them. And as we're going to see, to open their eyes because they have some role models right near where they live. And though he's going to give some criteria here in a minute for how you discern who role models are, isn't it interesting that after he says that you have role models around you, he then says to be very careful, however, to not imitate or use as, as examples a myriad of other people that he has been telling them about So we assume they are not people in the church there, but people who are be in culture around them in the Roman culture, kind of celebrity status. And don't miss that when Paul does this, then he's basically saying that this essential pattern that you and I naturally fall into today—that of choosing our role models as those who are close to us, but not maybe well known by other people—and then rejecting the celebrities that our world puts up, this same pattern has then been in effect for thousands of years now and it even made it into God's word, his instructions to you and me. And all I know is that that's pretty cool to me. That's actually awesome. That when I think of the fact that the pattern that you and I have quite frankly discerned pretty well up to this point in our lives is then a pattern that is also affirmed in the Bible, God's word to you and me, I get excited about that. And so I want to ask the question this morning, it's the only question I have, what do we learn from this? How does this affect you and me Monday through Saturday in our daily lives? Two things I want to leave with you here this morning. Two things that I see this passage telling us about how we can have just a few examples around us that might make a positive impact. And the first thing is this. Look up here on the screen. And that is that there are a few around you who are tried and true, And so follow their lead. This might be the only thing that some of you need to hear in your life right now because you're messing this up big time. There are a few around you who are tried and true, so follow their lead. And so let's look closer at this text. Look again at verse 17 of chapter 3 of Philippians, and I think you're going to see what I mean here. Look at how he begins this. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. If you underline your Bible, underline that word imitate. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example, underline that word too, that you have in us. The two operative words here are obviously imitate and example. He's saying there's something you need to imitate, there's an example out there for you. That word imitate here is a very interesting word in the original Greek language that the New Testament was originally written in. It's the Greek word sumimitai, where we get our English word mimic from, and it literally means to observe something then to internalize it for yourself and then act upon it isn't that interesting three components to it you observe something in the culture around you and then you internalize it you make it your own and then you act upon what you now believe for yourself Paul would expound upon this same idea in the next chapter of Philippians in verse 9 of chapter 4 when he says this he says what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so here's how it works. You and I see certain and good and godly things in others around us. We then hear their teaching and instruction on how they got this way. And 1 Corinthians 11:1 tells us that they got this way by Jesus. And then we choose to receive these same good things into our lives. We internalize them into our minds and hearts, and eventually we practice these same things that we've now seen, heard, learned, and received. And in so doing, we become imitators of those around us, not in some codependent, enmeshed way, but in a healthy way, having good role models around us in which we look at their lives and say, I like that. I like that godly thing that I see in this person around me. I like it a lot better than what I see in Howard Stern, so I think I'm going to imitate this in my life. And before you know it, you have a role model in your life that you're growing in Christ because of this person's influence. We observe, internalize, and then live out. But we're not done yet. Look again at verse 17, because that's just the first word picture he gives us, and notice that he gives us a second word picture that I would argue is maybe even more powerful when he says that we should walk according to the example that you have in us, meaning like Timothy and Epaphroditus and all the other people that were in the Philippian church back then, or the church in Philippi. And that word example there is likewise a very powerful word in New Testament literature, It's the Greek word typos, where we get our English word typology from. And it literally means, now get this, to mark or to trace or to copy. It carries with it the idea that a blow has been pressed into something, a blow so hard that it either marks or forms what it hits, thus forming a pattern for other people to see. And so the obvious idea here is that God has pressed a blow into the lives of just a few people around you. He has put a mark upon them and formed a powerful character in them through years of ups and downs, joys and trials, all the stuff you guys know about, and this has now become a pattern or an example for you to follow. That's what this word is getting at here. A blow has been struck, a person has been marked. That's an example now to you on how God works in one's life. So I, I was trying to think this week, well, given that wonderful word picture, how would we demonstrate this today? And so I'm doing some construction at my house. So I went and got a two-by-four. I got a hammer. We'll put all this together here in a minute. I got a cross from my office. I am a pastor, as you guys know. And, uh, and then somewhere in here, I also have a marker Where is it here? I forgot to use this illustration in the first service, by the way, and so this is new. You guys, they got none of this. And so uh, I got a marker, here we go. And uh, I I want you to to, to bear with me here. I want you to just use your imagination, and I want you to just, for the sake of our purpose this morning, pretend that this block of wood is you. Can you do that? It's you. It won't be too much of a stretch for some of you. This (laughs) block of wood is you, all right? And I want you to pretend that this hammer here, now you're going to love this one, is God. If you need to put some velvet on the end of it to help you, then you can do that. But just pretend that this hammer, you'll see where I'm going here, is God. This uh, cross represents who? Jesus. Boy, you guys must have gone to Sunday school or something like that. Yeah, this represents Jesus. And for the sake of our purposes, I want you to pretend that this marker represents the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you have you, we have God the Father, We have Jesus, and then we have the Holy Spirit. Here is exactly what Paul the Apostle is saying is going on here in our text today. And that is that at some point in your life, as God enters in and reveals Jesus Christ to you, he begins to hammer into you the character of Christ as you follow and trust him. Do you get the idea? Blow after blow in your life, through ups and downs, through ins and outs, through difficult times and easy times, through Bible studies, through prayer, through all the things that you've gone through in your life, he is hammering into you the character of Christ. That's what the Bible says happens as we follow him. Now, isn't it interesting that as he's hammering into us the character of Christ, he says then the Holy Spirit comes along and clearly marks what Christ has done and is doing in our life. The Holy Spirit, what one author calls the shy person of the Trinity, is the one who then comes along after God has been marking your life with the character of Christ, he comes along and he highlights what Jesus has been doing in you so that hopefully the end goal is that you walk around with the marks of Christ on you. That as you now grow in Christ, you have imprinted on you the marks of the Savior. His character, his love, his faith, his goodness. And that part of maturity in Christ, as Philippians has taught us, is that eventually you bear the marks of Christ on you. As he hammers into you, as God the Father does, the ministry of the Son into your life. And then the Holy Spirit clearly traces what God has done in you. And what this book is saying, or what this verse is saying here, is that there are people walking around, now check this out, in your life who have God has been hammering at so long in their character, and the Holy Spirit has been tracing so long in their lives that they now have a pattern in their life that's an example to you. They're an example of godliness, of goodness, of love, of faith, of perseverance. And God says, open your eyes start to become more like them because they're more like my son Jesus and so the opening idea here folks is that it's okay to become imitators of a select few in our lives whom we observe and then internalize and then live out what we see these folks are examples of how God can work in the life of those who are sold out to him and as we're going to see here in just a second that maybe he's even calling you to be an example yourself. There are a few around you who are tried and true, so follow their lead. And all I know, folks, is that over the last 30 years since I've been a Christian, I've been telling you all year, this is my 30-year anniversary of being a Christian. I was 17 when I accepted Christ. After 30 years now, there's been a few, as I look back over the mosaic of my life, whom you have no idea who they are. That goes back to our introduction. You have no idea who these guys are, but they have influenced me in such a significant way. In the man who I am today, and the pastor who I am today, they have been my examples who have imitated much of my life after. And they have names like this. Joe Abraham, who's pastoring a little inner city church in Cleveland now, but was my Youth for Christ director that led me to the Lord when I was in high school. Or how about Lud Goltz, who pastored a small church on the east side of Cleveland, who was my pastor after I became a Christian and influenced me in ways that only eternity will reveal. Or how about Kevin Butcher? Again, you don't know any of these people. He was my senior pastor for nine years when I was an associate pastor. The man taught me how to be honest and authentic from the pulpit and to teach the Word of God. And even now, I have a few people in my life now that I look around and I'm patterning my life after them in healthy ways. You get the idea. It's not the celebrity status that our world tells us that should be our role models. That's not it. It's those much closer to home that God and his goodness and grace and sovereignty has put around you that have become examples and imitators to you as well as to what a holy life looks like. And I believe that that's exactly the way God works, that he brings people around you and he says, open your eyes at what I've given you and what a godly life looks like. And so once you and I get this, this idea of imitators and examples that God places around us, the only question then becomes, well, how do we know who around us is this kind of person? In other words, how do we choose who these tried and true people are that our lives should and could become more like? And it's a great question. And Philippians 3, believe it or not, goes on to give us the answer. And here it is. It's point two on your outline. And that is that we must use parameterized discernment to know who are tried and true. You're going to like this, I promise. We must use parameterized discernment. You'll see what I mean by that in just a minute here. To decide or to know who are tried and true around us. And so look at verse 17 once again and you'll see what I mean. I want to show you something this time that we pretty much glossed over before. This is a very, very pregnant verse with meaning here. And I want to show you what we glossed over before. Look at it again. It says, brothers, join in imitating me. We saw that. Now here it is. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Focus on that little phrase, keep your eyes on. It's the Greek word skopeo, which simply means to look for, to notice something. And yet what's most interesting about this word is that it carries with it a sense, and I think you pick it up here in the English, that you're to carefully watch for something, that you need to keep on noticing and looking for something. I like how one author says it. He says it's the difference between a casual glance and an intense stare. So you and I were all taught since we were little guys to never stare at things or people. God says hogwash. Go ahead and stare. When it comes to the people around you and their claim to have a character that follows Jesus Christ, he says, look close. Stare at their lives for a very long time. Use some discernment here, some parameterized discernment that I'll give you here in a minute. And he says, look long and hard at their lives. See if there's something in them worth imitating when it comes to the good and godly things that God wants your life to be around, keep or be about, keep on looking into their lives. And isn't it interesting that once this is laid out, this idea of using focused discernment to assess who we're going to allow to be examples to us, that the next four verses, verses 18 to 21, give us the parameters of this discernment. This is why I call it parameterized discernment, because it's the kind of discernment that we need to put parameters around, the parameters of God's values as laid out in his word as the kind of people that he wants or not wants to be examples to us. And so let's be real clear about this, folks. It's not just a discernment that I hear so often in the church in which somebody says, okay, I need to discern who should be a good example and who shouldn't. So given my vast experience with life and others, I select this person and that person. And I will reject that person and this person for not being good examples. Aren't I a good discerner? It doesn't work that way at all. No, it's the kind of discernment where you use God's preset parameters as outlined in his word and as we're going to see here in Philippians as to what a good example is and is not. And so indeed you do need to discern from among all the people in your life but it's not a blank check kind of discernment where anything and everything goes as to what kind of values or data you will use. It's a discernment that's informed by what God has already laid out in his word. It's a discernment that uses his values as parameters, his values in telling you what to look for. It's a parameterized discernment. And so once you get that, the obvious question should become, if we're following the logic rightly, well what are these parameters that God has laid out for us, right? What are the things, the values that God has for you and for me as a kind of things we need to look for in people who we dare pattern our lives after and one of the cool things is and many of you know this because this is scottsdale bible church is that this book is filled with parameters amen it's filled with wisdom and values that god has given us i want to look for in godly examples things like those who are faithful those who are consistent godly true good kind other-centered christ-focused biblically wise And lots of other parameters that the Bible gives us on what to look for in good examples around us. And yet for our purposes this morning, I want you to simply notice how the next four verses here in Philippians give us a very clear and easy-to-use set of parameters on gauging who might be a good example and who might not. Again, I told you you're going to like this, and I think you will. Because put most simply, what the next four verses tell us here, give me a click, yeah, you got it, is that we need to look for those who think with an eternal mindset about life. That's the key phrase, an eternal perspective about life versus those who think only with this world in mind. It tells us to follow the example of those who see life from the vantage point of eternity, i.e. God's perspective, and conversely to be leery of those, and Paul says there are many, who see life only from a temporal or this world only perspective. Isn't that interesting? And so notice how Paul goes on in verses 18 to 19 to warn us about following the example of an earthly-minded person. He says, For many of whom I often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. And then he says, With minds set on earthly things. That last phrase, most commentators, experts on the Bible, point out is the key phrase. It's a wrap up phrase. It's basically Paul's way of saying, By the way, everything I just told you in the last two verses before this, here's the nutshell. They have mind set on earthly things, and he's obviously telling us here that this is not a good thing to be a person who only has an earthly perspective, and certainly not something that you and I would want to pattern our lives after. And the question I want to wrestle with for a second here, because some of you are rather new, maybe to the Christian faith, or even if you're not, you've never wrestled with this, is why is it that Paul's so concerned that we have as we're going to see an eternal perspective and... Not just an earthly perspective. Why is he concerned about people who have this earth only perspective? What's so dangerous about that? I mean, one could make the argument that, hey, you know, I got some people in my life that are good people, they're rather moral people, they set a fairly good example, but, you know, they're really not into Jesus, they're really not into God, and, you know, I mean, you're telling me I shouldn't pattern my life after them? I mean what's so dangerous about that mindset notice a few things that Paul says here first he says that that kinda mindset considers only visible and material things so much so that food and other pleasures become out of whack they become all that you live for that's what he means when he says their God is their belly and you and I know people like that who are good-hearted people and they're really kind to you And they might even have really done good in business or sports or whatever they've done, but, but, but basically their next pleasure is what they live for. They're never really living for anything eternally or any glory to God. No, Paul says their glory is their shame. They're mired in only the here and now. And then he says, basically, that they now have a profound disillusionment with life. They have no perspective of spiritual realities like what Christ did for us on the cross. Things like sin and forgiveness and grace are not really high values to them. He says they basically ignore God in the spiritual realm and isn't it sobering? He says it leads to destruction. You know, commentators argue, does that mean destruction here by like a life that's spiritually shipwrecked? Or does it mean destruction in the next life, like eternity without God? And they bicker back and forth on what it means. And I'm like, well, I don't know, probably both. I mean, somebody who doesn't know Christ, somebody that's just living for their own pleasure, is probably going to have a self-destructive thing happen to them here and, and probably in the next world as well. And don't miss what he's telling us, folks. He's telling us that there will be many, that should scare us, many in our past who have their minds set on earthly things. They see life only from a sociological, human-based perspective, not from a spiritual, God-based, Christ-centered perspective. And though we should love them, and pour into them and share truth with them regularly about God and his kingdom, he's saying don't use them as examples to follow, no matter how confident or together they might seem or try to portray. And this is why, by the way, that successful Hollywood types, or for that matter, successful political types or successful sports types or successful business types, who have attained all this world has to offer by way of success, fame, power, and prestige, but have no obvious and proven spiritual life that knows God through his son Christ and values his word, the Bible, why we should be very careful about following their example. Now it makes sense, because even though they might be good-hearted people, what a buddy of mine from my hometown in Cleveland calls a good egg He always refers to people as a good egg or a bad egg, and it usually has nothing to do with Jesus. It just has to do with how they treat him. And so even if somebody is a good egg and is doing okay right now, Paul is saying if they aren't grounded in Christ, if they don't have a spiritual life, if they're only thinking of the here and now, then be very, very careful having them be your example because basically where they're going in this life and the next is not a good place. It's not what you want to imitate. As Jesus said, they're going to gain the whole world but they're gonna lose their soul. And you don't want your life to be about that. Which is why, by the way, I even caution people, and especially teenagers, I got three of them myself, I even caution them that when you see somebody in Hollywood who's not really messing up right now, you know, who's actually doing pretty well, like they're, they're what I call semi moral and semi-spiritual, you know, they're actually in a season of life where they're doing okay, I say just be careful even using them as poster children that you wanna have as examples. Why? because it's coming it's coming i i mean jesus said that what is in the darkness will eventually come to light and and so i've lived long enough and many of you some of you have lived longer have realized that the reality is is that given enough time what's eventually in here is going to come out and be shown out here And, and so that's why we get shocked by a tiger woods Or shocked by Miley Cyrus or shocked by all these things we thought they were such great role models but honestly outside of a vibrant spiritual life in which you know who you are in Christ and you know where you're going when you die God says you're an accident waiting to happen and eventually what is going on in their lives is gonna come to light and then they're no longer a good role model and you wish you hadn't patterned your life after them and that's why this text we're looking at today is so important Because he's saying pattern your life after those who have proven themselves over a long period of time, very close to you, that you've been able to see and experience in your life, those are the ones that you want to begin to trust. And very positively, that's what he moves on to talk about in verses 20 with 21, and then we're going to be done. Look at what he says. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Obviously, Paul is talking about an eternal perspective here. Amen? I mean, looking closely at these two verses, just don't miss the mindset that this kind of person has when it comes to this world and reality. Paul says that this is somebody who knows that his or her citizenship is in heaven. In other words, that's simply a fancy way of saying that this person realizes this world is not my home and I'm just passing through. It's somebody who knows that Jesus is the only one who can save us eternally and that he's coming back someday to bring us to where he is. So their hope is not only grounded in this world, but it's grounded mostly in the next. It's somebody who knows that heaven is a very real place with no more tears, no more sinful and fallen bodies, but a new and glorified one. Again, they're thinking with eternity in mind. See a pattern here? And it's somebody who knows that God is sovereign and in complete control over all, even in the here and now, and that nothing happens outside of his peruse and care. He subjects all things to himself. And so add all this up, folks. This is obviously somebody who knows God and his economy really, really well. And I'm telling you, a person gets like this only after years of being honed by God's word, by time in prayer, by time with other believers. It's time that has been tested by fire, wind, rain, and even sunshine. And I want to be careful here because I'm not trying to describe, neither is Paul, a perfect person. I mean, far from it. It's just a real person. They fit the bill for what a godly example looks like. If you wanted a more objective test, go to Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. That's my last text I'm going to take you today. This is an awesome test for whether somebody is thinking with an eternal perspective. Look up here on the screen. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence of anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's an eternal perspective. That's a mindset that values the things of God more than anything else. So you're to pattern your life after people who focus on truth, honor, justice, purity, love, all wrapped up in a God obsession that settles for nothing less than knowing and following Him. These are the parameters of our discernment. An eternal perspective that knows God and the things of God versus only the things of this world. And the point is is that anything or anyone that doesn't fit within these parameters is not fit to be the driving example for your life and yet conversely if there is somebody around you or in this world that does fall within these parameters then he or she is a great candidate to be a driving example for your life and so i got like four minutes until i got to wrap it up and have troy lead us in our closing song and in four minutes i want to ask you three questions Three take-home questions that I dare you to answer for your life. The first one is this. What parameters do you use in discerning the example you should follow? That goes back to our first point. What what parameters do you use? I, I mean, is it the parameters of this world? Is it the parameters that you come up with and think about? That's an accident waiting to happen. Or is it the parameters of God's word that he has already given to you? Is it a parameterized discernment that comes from him that guides you in choosing who your examples are? And I got to tell you, this is a very important question for the church today, isn't it? i can't tell you many times i ask well-meaning christians i mean christ followers you know who are your examples and why do you follow them and i get this hodgepodge of all these who this reason that reason i like this guy and this person i'm like going really do you have a proof text for any of that from the bible i mean where are we getting this stuff you should be able to defend from the word of god the examples that you have and why they fit the bill as somebody that god would approve of from his word And then once you've answered that question, try this one. Who then is, are these tried and true people in your life? Who is tried and true around you? Who has God placed around you that could become, or maybe already is, a good and godly example for you? You see, I suggested to you earlier, and I really mean this, and I know some of you doubt it. I suggested to you earlier that every one of you have somebody like this. I just believe God is that good. And I believe that he's that gracious to you and I believe too that there's enough Christians that are doing something out there that they're a good example to you and yet I'm not going to know their names necessarily any more than you know who Joe Ludd and Kevin are but the reality is I think God has placed people in your life and if you take nothing else from our time today answer the question who are they and if you know who they are already then can I ask you to do this this week thank them Thank them for being an example to you. I'm probably going to call Joe and Kevin and Ludd and say thank you for being the example that you have to me, for me throughout the years because if without you, I, I wouldn't know what a godly life looks like with flesh and blood and speaking voice and all the things that you've been to me. And then I think the $10 question, the third question for us, give me a click here, guys, is what kind of an example are you? And who are you an example to? I think this is really where all this is taking us. I mean, there's two sides to this coin. If you figured it out, who are the examples around you? But then if we're going to personalize this for us at Scottsdale Bible Church here, the question becomes, well, then, what kind of an example are we? (laughs) And who are we the example to? You know, one of the things that scares me about this verse and what this will be done is there this passage here is that, I don't know if you caught it, but Paul seems to suggest that there's only a few people for the Philippians to imitate but that there are many that they shouldn't imitate. Did you pick up on that, Frank? you catch that? That that scares me. Because I, you know, we're pastoring, we have a really large church here. I'm pastoring a very large church, and I would like to think that if Paul the Apostle came back here today and spent a month at Scottsdale Bible Church preaching here and interacting with all of you, that he would say the opposite. He would say, gosh, there are many examples here in this church that people could follow. In fact, there's like 5,000 of them, enough for the whole city of phoenix if they all wanted to have an example wouldn't you love it if somebody said that about our church but i fear that might not be completely true am i being too hard i i I fear that there have been some of us who've been lulled to sleep when it comes to our christianity we've become really good pew sitters or bible study attenders or financial givers or whatever it is that we do to contribute but we're not really in the game We're not really walking with God in such a way that people around us look at us and go, whoa, you're my example. And yet that's exactly what God wants for you. And so maybe for some of you, the great challenge you need to take away with this week is to give some serious thought, maybe even laying it down finally, as to what your life is going to be from this point on and what kind of example you're going to be to your wife or your husband, to your kids, to your grandkids, to your neighbors, your friends, to the person driving out of the parking lot here today, hint, hint, what kind of example are you gonna be to those around you in big ways and in small ways? Last thought, 10 years ago, I'm preaching out of the story of the prodigal son. You all know the story. The younger son runs away, rebels against dad, comes back a painful wreck, dad gives him grace. The older brother cops an attitude, says that's not fair. Dad explains grace to the older son. Everybody that hears that story that Jesus told either identifies with the younger son or the older brother. They either say, I'm the younger son who runs away, or I'm the older brother that cops an attitude. I get it. I was reading a book ten years ago by Henry Nouwen in which Nouwen basically said, "That's good that we equate ourselves with those two people, but at the end of the day, what mature Christianity equates one with is the father in that story. And that you eventually have to grow up and become like the father stop being the younger son, stop being the older brother, become the father that learns to receive prodigals back and help older brothers not cop an attitude. And 10 years ago, I turned a corner in my life as a pastor. 10 years ago, I said, I'm going to stop relating to the younger son. I'm going to stop relating to the older brother. And God, by your grace, I want to become the father. I think it's the same thing today. Some of us are still looking for examples. I hope you find them. We spent most of our time on that today. I also hope you become one. I also hope that maybe today is a day for you to turn the corner and say, I commit to be an example of what it means to walk with God, to know him, and to live this Christian life he's called me to. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your word comes along, and though there are some in culture today that don't think it's very relevant, eh, they're so wrong, it's like relevant all over the place. And God, I thank you for your word that does speak to our lives where we live and as we've seen today lord even helps us wade through hollywood culture politics business our personal lives everything that we're faced with monday through saturday and god i pray that as we've plumbed a little bit of the depths of what it means to be an imitator and an example what it means to have people around us this way as well as to be that to folks around us i pray god that by your grace you take each of us the next step that you want us to go for some of us lord that will be to find an example around us by your grace help us to do that Give us a parameterized discernment that helps us to identify those people in our lives. And Lord, for others of us, we're ready to be examples. We were ready years ago. Help us, Lord, now to play catch-up, to have a sober and serious walk with you and the kind that allows others to pattern their lives after us around us. God, I thank you for your word. As we sing this last song of worship to you, I pray you might be pleased. And that uh, your grace would continue to be poured out on us. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, Amen. amen.